Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. There are only two ways to live. Do you know that this evening? There are only two ways to live. And yet, here's something else to think about. Is life complex or simple? Are relationships simple or complicated? We know, of course, don't we, just how messy life can be. So think of all the things that have kept you awake this past week, if anything has, or the things that during the daytime have made you feel anxious, all the things that you're this very evening scratching your head about, the relational problems you've got where life feels like a maze and there's just so much intrigue all around you. Do you know that? Somebody says something to you and you, you sit there thinking, what, what, did you, what did you mean by that? How, how are we going to put this right? How are we going to get to the bottom of this? What's going to happen here? How is this particular story going to end? I can't tell what might happen here, right? That's life, isn't it? Life is ambiguous, complex, messy, uncertain. Things are nuanced. And the Bible says there are only two ways to live. Only two. As simple as that. Do you see all the intrigue here in our passage? Will read for us this evening. These last two Sundays, it's all been about David, King David, exiled from Jerusalem. But now here tonight, just like he left Jerusalem, so now his son Absalom comes to Jerusalem. And immediately we've got this encounter here with the man who is a loyal friend of King David, Hushai. And then immediately we have another encounter with a man who is the betrayer of David, Ahithophel. And there is irony and intrigue. It's a lovely part of the story for we're wondering here who is going to come out on top. David has left. Absalom has arrived. But who is going to win here? Here in this strategic tussle in Jerusalem. Hushai is a spy. David's spy. Put there by David to thwart Ahithophel. Ahithophel is going to try and have David killed. And there is beautiful irony we're going to see in the way that Hushai speaks to Absalom. There is irony as well in the way that the text speaks about Ahithophel. So, friends, there are these kinds of layers to everything that we're going to see this evening. Nothing is quite what it seems as it meets our eye for the first time. Or or, or even more than that, better, everything is so much more than it seems. And there is complexity here all the way through and friends, and there are only two ways to live. Only two. You can either be friends with the king, or you can betray the king. Those are the options. You can be with the Lord Jesus, or you can be set against him. Those are the only two options in life. But, but, 
brothers and sisters, I want to show you something more than that this evening. It, it is not just that there are these two options running through life. Take your pick, which, whichever one. No, I want to try and show you here this evening why one of those roads is ultimate wisdom. Why you need to be a friend of the King. Why I want us to leave here this evening more determined to love the Lord Jesus, more, more drawn out after Him to want to be with to be with him forever, to serve him and to be friends with him. Oh, there's a very simple, beautiful reason for that. So let, let's just look at these two characters then very, very briefly. Hushai, Hushai and then Ahithophel. I want us just to understand what they're both doing to David. Number one, let's look at the friend's friendship. The friend's friendship. This, this is Hushai. Now, just look back to chapter 15, verse 32. Remind yourself about him. Chapter 15, verse 32, do you remember? While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. If you look down to verse 37, you'll see that Hushai is described as David's friend. David's friend. Look what David wants him to do. Verse 33, if you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and you say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant. If you do that, then you will defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. Okay, so, so do we understand what's happening here? David has left Jerusalem, but he is now planting a sleeper cell back in Jerusalem. He's planting a sleeper cell, his friend Hushai. You know, it's really amazing, isn't it, these last Sundays. I think we've seen, haven't we, Really, in a way, I don't think I had ever quite seen before how Second Samuel chapter 15 and 16, it is like, it's like an advance installment, isn't it, of the Lord Jesus' night of his passion, leaving, crossing the brook Kidron, climbing the Mount of Olives. All the, all the characters that are there in the Lord Jesus' final hours are here as well. There is a betrayer like Judas. There is a Hittifel. There, there's even someone willing to take out a sword and lop off somebody's head if it gets the job done. Do you, do you remember what Jesus says to his disciples in that moment in John's, John's Gospel, chapter 15? You are my, what? You are my friends if you do what I command. And, and, and here, in advance of that, here is the king saying to a man, you are my friend. Go back to Jerusalem. He's not on his own. Remember, Hushai also has Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, and their sons. So a five-man sleeper cell in Jerusalem. And he says to Hushai, he says, look, when the moment comes, pledge your allegiance to Absalom. Pledge your allegiance to him, but stay loyal to me. And that way you will then be able to thwart the big plan of Ahithophel. That is, he, he's the one that is aiming to bring me down. So we get it, right? Ahithophel is really the man we've got to watch out for. What is his counsel going to be? What's he going to do? And how is Hushai going to defeat it? Well, the first step is Hushai has to get Absalom to believe that Hushai is on Absalom's side. Right? That's what we have this evening. That's what you have in verse 16, 15 down to verse 19. But look, he does it in the most incredibly clever way. 
Do you notice? Look how he manages to make Absalom think that he's talking about him and being loyal to him when he's actually being ironic, isn't he? And pledging his loyalty to David right in front of Absalom. Did you, did you notice it? Verse 16. Notice he never uses Absalom's name. When Hushai the archite, David's friend, notice, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king. Long live the king. Which king is he talking about? He's saying it to this pretender king, isn't he? But we know he's loyal to the, the true king. It, it's a really daring way of saying to, saying to the pretender king, may the other king, the true king, live forever. For, for look at verse 17. When Absalom says to him, look, hang on, hang on a second. I know you were with David. Is this how you show loyalty to your friend David? That, that word loyalty there, it's the word for covenant Loyalty, kindness, faithfulness. Look what Hushai says. Isn't this so daring? He says, no, I will be covenantally loyal to the man that God has chosen and that all the men of Israel have chosen. You can kind of, kind of imagine him bowing down low to the ground, can't you? And just letting that ambiguity hang in the air. Who, who is the man that God has chosen? It's not Absalom, is it? It's David. Friends, this is just Hushai being bold enough to arrive in Absalom's, Absalom's presence and say to him, I am the king's man and I will forever be the king's man. And Absalom says, wow, okay, that sounds good to me. Do you know what, do you know what the commentators point out? I think, I think rightly. Commentators say the only way that this would work, that a man would be able to do that in Absalom's presence, is because of the vanity that there is right at the heart of Absalom's character. There's something flawed in this man, Absalom. Just give him a little bit of praise, and he's all yours. I mean, I mean look at it, verse 17, he's, he, he's kind of suspicious, isn't he? But, but then he just buys it pretty quickly. I, I am the king. Yes. Hushai, no one's actually called me that. Yes, but you're right. Finally, some recognition around here. Why is this working? Why is this possible? Friends, just look back to chapter 14, verse 25. Look back to chapter 14, verse 25. This I, know, this, I know, caused a lot of amusement when we read it the first time. 14, verse 25, Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. Look at this. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head. I mean, who, who does that? He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. See what's happening, friends? If you are Mr. Lord Luscious Locks, you are going to be open to flattering words, aren't you, when they come your way? You know, friends, I think it's worth saying, that, saying this. There, there is a vanity 
to nearly all leaders, to nearly all Christian leaders, and I say this as a Christian leader, that there is a vanity in leaders which does not need to be stroked or stoked. All men and women in some way who are many kings, given responsibility for others, there is a kind of vanity which is ultimately destructive. And it is all to do with praise directed at them that should really be directed at the true king. But leaders are so happy to take it for themselves. We're quite happy to take it for ourselves. You know, here's what I think Christian leaders need to do. You can tell me afterwards if you, if you agree with this. That Christian leaders, if you have real integrity in leading, I think you need to learn to do three things. You need to learn to weigh criticism. When criticism comes your way, not to be immune to it, not to brush it off, not to be angry or upset about it. You need to learn to weigh it. Secondly, number two, you need to learn how to express gratitude for encouragement. You need to learn how to express gratitude for encouragement. Some leaders, when you encourage them, they, 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 it's like they don't want to hear, no, 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 it mustn't be true. No, you need to learn how to say thank you for encouragement. But here's the third thing Christian leaders, that Christian leaders need to learn to do. You need to learn to be impervious to praise. Impervious to praise. In other words, to not let praise settle into the cracks of your soul. To not let praise be the kind of morsel that you tuck under your tongue to really savor and enjoy. No praise. Praise to you, for you, at you. That, that, that can rot a man or a woman's soul. Now, please hear me right, friends, in this. Please hear me right. Please encourage your leaders. Please encourage your leaders. I, I hope you've heard me say that many times. Encouragement is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Encouragement can change the weather in your head, can't it? Encouragement is the sunshine of the soul. I don't think there's probably anybody in this room going home tonight saying, do you know what, I've, I am absolutely full to the brim of encouragement. I've had enough. No, we, we always need encouragement, don't we? It's a beautiful thing to intentionally, carefully encourage. And that is not the same thing as praising somebody for themselves. Praise says, you are amazing. Encouragement says, thank you for showing me, like Sinclair said this morning, thank you for showing me that the Lord Jesus Christ is amazing. That's encouragement. So look at this, friends, here. This, this man, Absalom, that has this kind of weakness, it's, it, it's part of why he is a pretender king, isn't it? He wants the glory for himself. He wants the praise. And so Hushai sees his weakness, lavishes him with praise, and the stage is nearly set. Hushai is now on side with Absalom. So we have to wait, friends, to chapter 17 next week. Look at the heading for chapter 17. I hope you'll enjoy this as we read it. Hushai saves David. I'm going to come to that next week. But I, I, I want to, to look at the second character, Ahithophel, and hopefully bring the whole sermon together with one point. But here's the second thing. Look at the traitor's treachery. Look at the traitor's tre treachery. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel. 
Remember, that's exactly what David said to Hushai. You will frustrate Ahithophel's counsel for me. Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel. What shall we do? What is his plan going to be? Look, it's so awful. Friends, this is so brutal. Verse 21. Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. And so they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. This is so brutal on so many levels. So many people are being tragically wronged here. One commentator says, It is difficult to imagine anything more calculated to offend, disrespect, and hurt David than Ahithophel's cool, cold-blooded counsel that Absalom have sex with each of his father's concubines. See, in warfare, if you did that, that was part of you publicly claiming your vanquished opponent's throne. You're, you're taking what belonged to him as yours. You, you, you take what's his, okay? But it's worse than that. This is the father-son relationship. That's what makes this particularly crude. That's what John Woodhouse, the commentator, says. This is Leviticus chapter 18. This is Deuteronomy chapter 22, Genesis 9, Ezekiel 22. It's what the law called uncovering his father's nakedness. Listen to this. It was an irreversible act of the utmost provocation, comparable even to rape. Oh, how evil. How awful. There, there are such awful depths to this. See, Ahithophel is trying to crush David. He's not just trying to beat him. He's trying to utterly destroy him. He's trying to humiliate him. He's trying to make, isn't he? Think about it, friends. He's trying to make the breach between father and son absolutely irreparable. Unrecoverable. And look, he says, not just that, Absalom, let's do it on the roof. The roof. Remember where we came across this, first of all? Do you remember where David first saw Bathsheba? This is in the exact same place. Oh, the exact same place. Look at the terrible fruit of that first terrible sin. One man's lust is for one woman. Now it's taking terrible form in his son's further degradation and destruction of everything. And do you see why it's so awful? Verse 23. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Isn't it incredible? Ahithophel had been so trusted, so loved, so listened to, that when he opened his mouth to speak, it was as if God himself was speaking. It was like hearing God himself speak. 
That's why David trusted him so much. That's why Absalom trusted him so much. If we want to know God is on our side, you listen to Ahithophel. But not now, of course, with this travesty of God's word. Except, friends, except. And look, here, here is where I very simply want to, to try and bring all of this together. Except, friends, wonder of wonders, terrible wonder. In this terrible episode, look at it. In this counsel that Ahithophel is giving to Absalom, verse 23, look at it with me. Verse 23 is not just ironic, this sin against God's law. Oh no, friends, this is also true. This counsel, this advice, this action plan given to Absalom for crushing his father's kingdom, this counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if he had consulted the word of God. How could we forget chapter 12, verse 20? How could we forget chapter 12, verse 20? Just turn back to it. Chapter 12, verse 20. Sorry, chapter 12, verse 12. Let's read it from verse 11. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, and I will give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel. And before the sun. Now now look at verse 23 of chapter 16 again. The counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if he had consulted the word of God. Do you see what's happening? Ahithophel's advice to Absalom, he thinks it's a masterstroke. It's meant to overthrow David's kingdom. Actually, all he is doing is carrying out God's judgment on David's kingdom. You see it? His scheme to remove God's chosen king actually fulfills God's previous word. That's what Dale Ralph Davis Davis says. His scheme to remove God's chosen king actually fulfills God's previous word. Trying to destroy God's king, he, he accomplishes God's word. He accomplishes the purposes of, of God by doing something that he thinks is against God and will harm his king and his kingdom. What Ahithophel says was evil. Yes, it was wicked. Absalom listening to it was evil and wicked. Absalom doing it was even more evil and wicked. And yet... And yet, behind this, through this evil, God is not surprised or shocked. God is not in heaven wringing his hands saying, well, what are we going to do now? Time for plan B, or maybe by this stage in redemptive history, time for plan J or K or P or Q by now. No, not at all, friends. Never that, never that. Listen to Alistair Begg. The mystery is this, that this evil act 
was at the same time the Lord's doing. Evil never thwarts God's good purpose. It doesn't, it can't. Neither is evil ever justified because it is used by God for good. No, it never changes evil into a good. Evil is evil. Lies are lies. They do not become something else but here, in the mystery of it all, in the words of Ahithophel, unbeknownst to him, he is actually setting forward what God himself has said beforehand through his prophet. Isn't that astonishing? And so, and so this is what I want to say, what, what I hope we can see, friends. There are only two ways to live. Yes, that's true. Friendship with the king of of the world or treachery towards the king of the world. Treachery or rebellion are the only two options. Life is that simple. Whatever you're facing at the minute, it always comes down to those two things in all its complexity. You are either for Jesus or you are against him. But here is why we all need to choose today the right side to be on. Here's the main thing at the heart of all of this. Because in the end, friends, the king wins. In the end, the king wins. What God says will happen, will happen. What God has said he will do, he will always do. Even when it seems like evil is gaining the upper hand against what God has said he will do. If God has said his purposes cannot be thwarted, that a world of sin and wickedness and rebellion is somehow all of it, somehow part of his plan, not an unexpected accident disrupting his plan. If God has said that is the case, it is the case. If God has said sin and rebellion will never cut us loose from him, but actually our sin and rebellion is him giving us over to our sin over to the judgment he has said will follow if we go against him if everything that happens that goes wrong in the world is exactly what God has said would go wrong the moment we turn our back on him then it means friends there is no tragedy in the world no evil in the world that is not also somehow part of the great story God is telling to bring everything everything together under Jesus Christ as king. I don't know if I'm making sense. I don't know if this is coming across. I hope I'm managing to convey this. Here's what Dale Ralph Davis says. This is, this is why there is hope for God's people. Even in this text. Even in this text. It's like every time we, we work our way through Second Samuel. We want to say this is as bleak as it gets. And it just seems to keep getting bleaker doesn't it? And even in this text there is hope. Even though it is depicting a judgment on God's king. Because it is saying that the betrayer is actually yet in the hand of God. His very act of treachery is only carrying out God's word. Brothers and sisters, God's word wins. God's word wins. What God has said will happen will happen. When evil people do evil things, they are only doing what God himself beforehand has said they will do. Sinclair mentioned it this morning, didn't he? Don't we see this so perfectly, so stunningly with the Lord Jesus Christ himself? 
I want you just to turn forward in your Bibles, page 910, Acts chapter 2. And we finish with this, Acts chapter 2 and verse 22, page 910. Here is where we see this supremely, men of Israel. Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up, now notice, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, that plan and foreknowledge of the one in whom there is no evil, no wickedness, nothing that is wrong, no lawlessness in God, delivered up according to his plan, this Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see it? Both things together. The Lord Jesus in all those events we've been considering foreshadowed here, led out to die. It was the greatest evil the world has ever seen. It was the greatest plan the world has ever known. Both are true. And somehow a holy, pure, perfect God holds all that happens in the world full of evil in his hands, within his care. He is not the author of it. He is not responsible for it. We are responsible. Oh, and yet it is his definite plan. Oh, he's always at work, whatever happens. The, the illustrations that Sinclair gave about the, the messiness of providence, the, the messiness of wondering how on earth could this possibly be part of God's plan? No, the, there in that moment in the death of the Lord Jesus, at the very moment at which the devil himself seems to say, this is my moment of triumph. At that moment, the evil being carried out is according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. I think you've heard me say this before, haven't you? That one day all of history will be shown to be church history. One day all of history will be shown to be church history. In other words, one day everything will be shown to be what God has been doing in this world for his people presented to Christ the King. He is bringing everything together under Christ in heaven. Sometimes when you watch the news, you, you see it. You say, yeah, I can see what God is doing. I, I, I glimpse it. Most of the time you watch the news and you simply have to confess by faith, don't you, that he is bringing everything together under Christ. We can't see it. We can't work it out. I don't know all the details of your life right now, but I know there are mysteries. I know there are tears. I know there are loose ends, things that we cannot join up. Parts of the clock are working one way and working the other way, and we cannot even tell the time on the front. Well, what is God possibly doing here with, with me right now? You know, sometimes you, you, you see a small child pick up a beautiful tapestry, and they've picked it up, and they're looking at it, and they're saying, this is this is ugly, Grandma. This doesn't make sense. And you have to say, no, you're looking at it the wrong way around. You turn it around. And of course, on the back of the, the patchwork, everything seems crisscrossed and out of shape. And on the other side, you see 
the grandeur and the beauty and the perfection. And friends, that's where we are right now this evening. It's where I am. I'm sure it's where you are. We, we do not yet have access to the full, the full picture of what God is doing. Sometimes while one thing is happening, something else is happening beneath the surface, behind the scene. In any one thing, God is always doing a thousand things. But sometimes he does those thousand things through that one thing. He's always good. I think we're meant to get to verse 23 in chapter 16, aren't we? And just simply smile to ourselves. The counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. I think David, if he had heard verse 23, if he had heard what Ahithophel was saying, I think David would have said, it's true. This is the judgment of the Lord. Oh, may God help us to esteem, to esteem the counsel not of men like Ahithophel, but the counsel of his own word in all that he gives, in all that he speaks. He is always good, always wise, always holy. His judgments are true and faithful and righteous. And your whole life, my whole life, is in his hands. Amen.